and I would go down and fly over it. And it was like being in a war zone. I mean, it was really, you know, like watching Apocalypse Now. You, it, was, it was a war zone. Hey, welcome to Green Canvas. My name is Toby Carpenter, and this podcast is all about creative individuals helping to tackle the climate and environmental crisis through their work. We'll be talking to a wide range of creative practitioners, from designers working with sustainable materials to artists and photographers exploring global warming. We'll learn more about their work, how they use their skill sets for positive environmental change, and also what tips they have for you to utilize your own creativity and help the world build the sustainable future our planet needs. So stay tuned, and I hope you enjoy and find Green Canvas useful. Our guest today is photographer and environmentalist Jay Henry Fair. At first glance, his photographs strike you with their beauty, often resembling in colour and composition the most beautiful of abstract paintings. But at second glance, the ugly realities of what they reveal is laid bare. Oil spills in the Gulf of Mexico, toxic waste from coal mines, and rising sea levels around America's coastlines. His images are often taken airily, and this is the case in two of his key projects, Industrial Scars and Coastlines. In Industrial Scars, he captures some of the unseen effects of hydrofracking, oil drilling, and coal ash waste, to large-scale agricultural production and abandoned mining operations. And in Coastlines, he delivers a portrait of coasts around the US, highlighting humanity's impact on these environments and the effects of rising sea levels. His work has received widespread critical acclaim and media attention, landing features on the BBC, The Guardian, National Geographic, Time magazine, and many more. And his photographs have been exhibited in galleries across the world and been the recipient of many awards. He's one of the most knowledgeable individuals I've ever spoken to about environmental and sustainable issues, so there's lots of interesting anecdotes, information, and advice that he gives in our interview that I think you'll find useful. And if you'd like to check out some of Jay Hemi Fair's work before listening to our interview, we have a few links in the show description, which will take you straight to the web pages of some of the projects we speak about in this episode. And so without further ado, here's our conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. I was actually in London when COVID started. I was photographing the um, Thames Barrier. Oh, okay. Was that for like a personal project or a commission? Uh, well, pretty much everything I do is my own initiative. And then I uh, sell it or exhibit it or whatever later. You know, there, there have been a few things where I've gotten someone to sponsor me but usually I'm the one that you know it all starts with research and usually it's me that sees the problem based on my reading and and figures out where it's happening and then goes there and um, photographs it and you know I, I, I put together big stories yeah that take putting together the stories takes years the stories themselves evolve over years. And so, yes, it's always, I'm, I'm pretty much always self-commissioned. So how long do you normally take to do research before you begin starting a project? It can be years. There's so many variables. The first one, of course, is time and space, but money is always a variable. For instance, 
I told you I was in London right as COVID hit and froze world travel. I was I had tickets to go on to Singapore where I was going to exhibit and teach and from there was going to go to Indonesia. Basically from Singapore I was going either to Indonesia or to Australia depending on subjects that I wanted to photograph in both places. But Indonesia is very hard to hire a plane and to get permits. And so I very well might have gone on to Australia uh, to photograph either. I wanted to photograph several things in Australia, the mining, um, the damage from the uh, from the fires and, you know, something of the Great Barrier Reef. But um, the cost of, as I was researching, the co- there's several things that you know that they're moving the city of Jakarta. Okay, I didn't know that. Jakarta is on the list of coastal cities which are soonest to be overcome by ocean rise. Jakarta's basically number one. So they have a plan to move the city which is one of the most populous cities in the world. By 2050, it will be the most populous city in the world. And they are going to move it up into the mountains of Borneo. But uh, yeah, so the point is that my projects are, are depend on so many variables, like cost is one, since I'm basically self-financed, um, logistics, Uh, Does it fit into a story? Is there a legislative movement that I want to try to affect? All of these uh, play a part in, in my decision about where to go and what to photograph. So do you often spend days or months working on a project and then one of the variables shifts and it means that you can't carry out the project like you thought you would and you have to change projects? Does that happen often or has that ever happened before? doesn't occur to me. So I'm sure it has, but yes, it's not really a factor. Okay. Actually, um, when I was doing research for this interview, I was looking, of course, at your website and there was a video on your website, which caught my interest. It was a video and you described yourself as a photographer that thinks like a scientist, an engineer and an environmentalist. And I was wondering what came first, the photographer, the scientist, the engineer, or the environmentalist, and in what order did they come to you, and how and why? I Well, first, I'm an artist, yeah, which means I try to create something, a piece of art, or um, whatever that might be. We could, we could define art, but we don't need to at this point. Um, so first, I'm an artist, but, uh, you know, Leonardo, not that I'm comparing myself, Leonardo da Vinci, what was he? Well, of course, he was an artist, but he was also an engineer and a, a designer of weapons. And, you know, he was a complex personality, as are we all. So I would say, first, I'm an artist. Second, I'm a scientist. I really, you know, how does the world work? I want to I want to know questions and answers. Um, and of course, the scientist makes assumptions based on previous data and then tests those assumptions and revises them based on, on the results of the tests. As an engineer, I love, to, I love to make things, in fact, and I love to know how things work, yeah, which is part of when I'm up in an airplane and looking at an industrial site. Uh, after doing this for 
many years. I do know how things work, but yeah, I want my pictures to explain to a viewer how things work. You know, all of these questions are very interesting for me. And of course, they all lead to another question. So you're in the UK and the UK has pretty successfully stopped burning coal. Sound of hands clapping. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. So let's go backwards. What's happened to replace that coal? Oh, wait, biomass. Do you know what biomass is? Um, my knowledge of science isn't as, as good as it should be. So uh, it started with a good idea. The idea was, okay, we'll burn scrap wood and paper to make electricity. Sounds great, yeah? But in fact, there's not enough scrap wood and paper to, to make any significant dent in our electrical desires. So uh, do you know what the largest carbon emitter in Europe is? Um, not off the top of my head. <laughs> Uh, it's a power plant up near um, it's up near Leeds. It was burning coal, but then they converted it to burn biomass. But of course, as we know, there's not enough biomass to burn. Now, there happens to be an EU subsidy and a UK subsidy, now that you're separated, for biomass. Yeah, because the idea is... So, back to the idea. The idea is you burn scrap wood and paper to make electricity. Okay, there's not enough scrap wood and paper. Well, but we could cut down a tree and burn that tree and plant a tree uh, to replace it. And that's carbon neutral, right? Cut a tree, burn a tree. No, it's not carbon neutral for a bunch of reasons. One, trees absorb carbon late in their life. Yeah, they, the growing tree doesn't absorb so much carbon. So, and our crisis is now. We need to stop our carbon emissions now. And, but the real irony is that we, the public, are paying subsidies to this company uh, in Leeds. Um, it's called Drax. I don't usually name companies, but there it is. In fact, it's in Selby, and it's an old coal-fired power plant that's burning. Oh, but wait a minute. Here's the most insulting part to me. They are burning forests from the Southeast United States, old growth forests, which are being cut down at a staggering rate to feed these biomass power plants uh, in Europe. And the Europeans are giving carbon credits to these power plants, which are basic. So imagine that forest, old growth forest cut down in South Carolina, North Carolina, and Alabama, made into pellets and shipped across the ocean to a power plant in Northern Europe, either the UK or Northern Europe, to produce electricity. Craziness, yeah? So that's the sort of story that I try to tell. And of course, your work has a very industrial feel to it. Lots of mines, factories, and oil spills. What, what drew you to these sites above other sites or other topics within the environmental landscape? Well, of course, there's several factors working uh, with me. One, I am fascinated by the inherent beauty of the works of man. Yeah, the things that we, back to Henry the engineer, the things that we as humans make are beautiful. You know, I mean, offshore geostationary oil rig is Bach. I mean, it's 
it's a it's an amazing a staggering piece of science and mathematics and you know the 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 form follows the function and becomes something quite beautiful in a way so i'm fascinated by that and i love to photograph it but then there is the dark side which is that that offshore oil rig is drilling for oil and you know oil is burning hydrocarbons or using hydrocarbons to make plastic is killing us and so there there are multiple ironies there and I always, uh, I always try to exploit irony on multiple levels in what I do. And this exploitation of irony in your work, I think I saw it when I, when I looked at how beautiful some of your images are. There's this inherent juxtaposition between the beauty of some of your images and the content matter at hand, because obviously it shows and documents some of the destruction we've caused on our own planet. Is this juxtaposition intended? Yes. And that's, that's sort of, you know, irony level one. Um, there are always multiple levels of irony in what I do. Certainly the first one is to make something beautiful, to make a beautiful piece of art out of something horrible. And again, there are multiple levels. Uh, another one is, you know, I'm speaking to people who, like yourself and myself, who, um, you know, there's no way as, as conscientious as one might try to be, there's no way we're leading a sustainable existence on, you know, and that's an irony in itself. Yeah, I know that I am stealing from our grandchildren. One of the results of, of my work and research is that I do everything I can do to make my um, existence as sustainable as possible. But there's basically the, your carbon budget doesn't even allow for one, you know, one intercontinental airplane flight, much less, you know, hamburger on that. Right. I mean, if we want to leave our children uh, a planet which they can live on, then we need to completely rethink our economy. And within your work and when you're carrying out projects, when it comes to your equipment, when it comes to the way you carry out these projects, what are the things you've incorporated that help you have as much of an eco-friendly project as possible? It's more about how I live my life on a day-to-day basis. Look, let's face it, I'm getting into a small airplane and flying over for instance, and flying over the uh, the Thames Barrier to make a picture to tell a story about ocean rise and climate change um, and the threat to coastal cities. And there's no way to do that without getting into that small plane and, you know, which is burning gasoline, uh, right? There's no way to do that. But I can take a train there and I can eat vegetarian and I can, you know, all of the things that I can do in my life to live sustainably, you know. And so there's no way for me to get into that airplane and make that picture. I had an environmental group in Germany. This is a question. Of course, it's a relevant question. And I had an environmental group in Germany ask me, well, couldn't we do it from a balloon? But, you know, let's see, a balloon, is it filled with hydrogen? Where does that hydrogen? No, it's not. It's filled with helium or a hot air balloon, most likely. In fact, it's not filled with hydrogen or helium. It's going to be a hot air balloon, which is powered by, you know, hydrocarbons filling that balloon with hot air. But more than that, 
you know, in a hot air balloon, you're subject to the wind and you're not going to be able to, to, on a windy day, get yourself over the um, Thames barrier. I'm obviously I'm using London as an example here. And even if you could, Tim's barrier happens to be right next to the city airport, and those air traffic controllers aren't going to let a hot air balloon fly there because the city airport is a very busy airport. And um, in fact, when we were shooting the Tim's barrier, um, my pilot, he um, it was a windy day, and he strayed into the city airport's airspace. And so we got one pass over the Thames barrier, then the city airport, we strayed accidentally into their airspace, into the approach zone, and they said, get out of there. Don't come back. (laughs) So my point here is there's no way to do that environmentally. You can't do it with a hot air balloon. And in fact, a hot air balloon is probably not very environmental anyway. But to get, you know, it's all about how we live our lives. And I take a train wherever I can. I don't eat meat except maybe once a week. And, you know, I live my life in as sustainable a way as I can. I'm in New York or Berlin, which means that I can buy all of my vegetables in bulk with no packaging, right? I, I, you know, I set my life up so that I don't make waste. I use as little water as possible. I would never eat a fast food hamburger um, because, you know, going to a fast food hamburger joint means literally cutting down the Amazon, right? I mean, you have to ask yourself, is this hamburger worth it to cut down the Amazon? The answer is always no, unless it's a matter of survival, perhaps. Well, and more to the point, I mean, and that, that, that goes to the heart of what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to do is create a compelling piece of art, which a viewer looks at and says, what is that? And then wants to have the answer, really wants the answer. And then I try to provide that answer in as interesting a way as possible. You know, I try to make a beautiful piece of art that sparks someone's interest and gets them to ask a question. And then I try to provide an answer in a way that doesn't make their eyes roll over and makes them think about how they live their lives. And do they want to eat that fast food hamburger, which means the cutting down of the Amazon, which means, you know, the loss of our, of that, that hydrosphere, which is changing the weather of the world. Yeah. So, I mean, look at the storms you've had in the UK over the last years. They're crazy. They are pretty crazy. Although I haven't been in the UK much to experience them. So I was living in Spain before quarantine and coronavirus, and I only moved back to London a few months ago. Where in Spain? I was in Madrid for two years. Nice. Spain is such an interesting case, yeah, because of, well, you know, the deforestation of of the Iberian Peninsula, which made it very dry. And one of the things that fascinates me about Spain is the Moorish incursion. Yeah, which, um, I mean, that changed our world. We don't really think about it, but the Moorish invasion of, of the Iberian Peninsula, which might have been all about resources. It might have been, we don't know this for sure, but it might have been about 
the um, Rio Tinto mine. Do you know this? I don't know the the Rio Tinto mine. Um, The Rio Tinto mine is one of the most valuable um, mines in the world. It's up near Seville and um, copper and gold. And it's pretty much exhausted now, although they reopened it since it's one of the most valuable, one of the most resource intensive locations. Guess what? It's also the site of some of the most horrific um, environmental disasters in Europe. And uh, yeah, but the, you know, the, the confluence of political history and resource extraction and environmental degradation, they always go hand in hand. So it's slightly off topic, but I wanted to ask you, do you believe environmental artwork has to be beautiful in some way in order to get the attention the subject matter deserves? I believe that the average Jane does not have environmental questions at the top of her head. At the top of her head are the questions of day-to-day life, you know, depending on on economic strata, either it's how am I going to get food on the table or how am I going to get these kids to school or, you know, again, depending on her environmental um, economic strata, very few people living in the world have environmental questions at the top of their heads. So witness the prevalence of environmental questions in the news media. Given the, um, the importance of environmental questions, they're really not that high on the, on the media's agenda, right? And, and they're not high on Jane's agenda either. So yes, I believe that to raise the rank of importance of environmental issues in the average person's head, they need to be presented with more panache than they have been in the future. And are there any other ways you try and get people interested aside from using beauty in your work? Are there any other methods you found to be useful capturing people's attention? You know, using beauty is the way that I have chosen. You know, I've also been obnoxious, but that never works. I feel really strongly about these things because I view myself as a citizen scientist. And so I read a lot about stuff. And I think that we are rushing quickly to uh, societal collapse. No one is really, you don't hear any discussion of this, but if you step back and look at the factors, um, they all point to not much time. For instance, um, let's look at uh, one of the big issues on the table right now in the EU um, Brexit discussions. Well, Brexit has already happened, but one of the big issues is fisheries. Basically, it's about dwindling supplies of North Sea fish. And UK fishermen are saying, hey, we don't want those EU fishing boats in our waters. And the EU is saying, hey, wait a minute, those are international waters and et cetera, et cetera. But let's step back and, and look at the, at the state of the world's fisheries. And it's dire. It's a crisis. And then let's step back a little further and ask, are the oceans going to crash? Yes. What percentage of the world's population depends on the oceans for food? A big number. What are we going to do 
when suddenly the oceans no longer provide food for that 20 or 30% of the world's population that depends on the oceans to eat. Because at the same time that we are overfishing and polluting the oceans, we are changing weather patterns. Yeah, cutting down the Amazon, eating those fast food hamburgers, changing monsoon patterns in Southeast Asia, which is going to mean that agriculture in Southeast Asia fails, which is going to mean that those vast numbers of people, which A, no longer have the agriculture, B, no longer have the fisheries, C, hungry people are not a pretty sight. And what are they going to do? They're going to come to Europe. Um, but, you know, the migration of Northern Africa to Europe, it's only just begun. And look at the reaction it has sparked in Germany and Europe. Right, the um, nationalism and right wingism that have been prompted in Germany by Merkel's decision to say yes, we accept refugees. There's a the, again. I I try to step back and look at bigger pictures, and these are not pretty pictures, and they're they're long range, and we're only at the beginning. So yeah. We got a crisis. A big crisis in so many different ways, for sure. I wanted to ask you a bit about your project, Industrial Scars. So we've kind of touched upon it without mentioning the name of the project. And I wanted to ask you what attracted you to starting this project and what was the process of carrying out the project from start to finish? It started with my... And this is, you know, throughout the history of photography, photographers have always been enamored of the beauty of machine, the graphic beauty of machines and, you know, the works of man. So that's not unique to me. But what maybe is unique is my sensitivity, environmental consciousness. Yeah. And I was trying to figure out a way to tell that story, that environmental story with pictures. And so I was, and, and I also, I've always had this knowledge that our reliance on hydrocarbon energy was leading us to disaster, even when I was a child. I don't know why. That's, that's a, that question is a mystery to me. So I was trying to figure out how to tell that story and, you know, I was sneaking into refineries and taking pictures of, uh, you know, all those beautiful pipes and stainless steel tanks and stuff like that, which are graphically beautiful. But they didn't have the, the tremendous uh, ironic beauty that the industrial scars stuff holds. In fact, back to Spain, <laughs> the police chased me down in a refinery in, in Seville anyway. Did you fly away in a helicopter or a plane? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. I pulled the old switch the film trick. Um, this was in the days of film, and they said, all right, in Spanish, my Spanish is passable. 
Um, they said, all right, give us the film and, and we won't take you to jail. And so I, I've, I've done this trick several times where, you know, you see the police coming and you take the roll of film out of the camera and put in a new roll and, and snap a couple of pictures. And then they say, give us the film and get out of here. And you protest and then you give them the film, the, you know, the new roll of film and then you leave with your tail between your legs. Yeah. So. I was trying to figure out how to make beautiful pictures. I was trying to figure out how to make a picture which told this story and would touch people in the because that's what art makes us feel something. That's the difference between art and document. Yeah, art makes us feel something. Art touches our emotions. And then one day I was on a red eye flight from California to New York. And I woke up and looked down at dawn and there was a power plant on a river and the river was shrouded in fog and the the cooling towers were poking out of the fog and I grabbed my camera and photographed it and I thought, wait a minute, that's it. Get above it, right? I mean, you know, as humans, as terrestrial animals, we've all dreamed of flight and as an artist, the visual being, the, the terrestrial visual being, the horizon always defines how we view um, a landscape image, yeah? Where's the horizon? What's the sky doing? What's the color of the light? These define for the terrestrial brain so much. Whereas if you can get above it and remove that horizon, it becomes something else. And also the other key to my work is abstraction, learning. And this took a, once I figured out to get above it, then figuring out that suddenly an abstract maybe tells more than a recognizable image. And you see this in the movies. Often it's the close-up which tells the story more than the establishing shot. And so that's the succinct timeline of how I came to make those pictures. Needless to say, um, it took a long time and a lot of thinking and a lot of growing environmental awareness and talking to environmental scientists and taking a lot of pictures came in between and so what was the most shocking site you visited and photographed during the project? Was there any in particular that left a significant mark? I, I read about an occasion where you were flying above the Gulf of Mexico when you witnessed an oil leak, which led to millions of gallons of oil spilling into the sea. Was this the worst? That was really a life-changing project in that it was so horrific. And for for the average person... It was just, you know, some little thing happening down there, but it was really earth changing. The Gulf of Mexico will never be the same. I will never, uh, I would never eat seafood out of the Gulf of Mexico because of the, you know, staggering amount of oil and chemicals, you know, the dispersants that were sprayed on top of the oil to sink it. You know, I, I believe that it changed that water body forever. 
And I went down numerous times to do it. Again, the, the pilot which flew me on that project multiple times, the, these pilots are really my collaborators. And they are also great environmentalists and they become great friends over the years. But yeah, I flew down, if you remember that Deepwater Horizon spill persisted for whatever, four months and I forget the number, but it poured a staggering amount of oil into the Gulf of Mexico. And I would go down and fly over and it was like being in a war zone. I mean, it was really, you know, like watching apocalypse now you it was it was a war zone and i would go out there with my pilot and photograph this thing and then come back and process the images and you know think about it and go back to new york and you know, people would say well what's it like down there but you know they were still living their new york life and they they weren't thinking hey the world has changed no, it's so easy to build the disconnect from the catastrophes that are happening in a different country or a different region unless they're right under our noses. And even when they're right under our noses, the horror kind of fades away within a day or two just because our daily lives take over. Well, and as you said earlier, we don't want to know the horror. People want good news. People want to know what the actress is wearing. Yeah, they don't want to know about, about the environmental disaster that will affect their children. They want to know about, you know, what's the latest song and, and the fashions and, you know, what's hip. But I must say, again, I, I take things personally. One of the things which, one of the recent things which was most horrific for me was this power plant in Selby, knowing that the UK is subsidizing the cutting down of forests in my home. I, you know, I'm still a Southerner. The UK is subsidizing the cutting of, of old growth forests in my home so that you can have your warm homes. Um, and I want the UK to have warm homes, but I don't want you to cut down my forests to do it. Because let's face it, world, pollution knows no boundaries. Just because you're burning those wood pellets in, you know, in Selby, doesn't mean that, and it's cutting down forests in, in Alabama and South Carolina and North Carolina, the effects of that will come to you. Similarly, eating that fast food hamburger from, you know, the local fish and chip shop doesn't mean that the effects of cutting down the Amazon, that you're insulated from that. They're going to haunt you even there in the UK. And I'm using the UK as an example because that's where you are and I assume that's where your listeners are. But yeah, the effects of pollution don't respect political borders. No. And um, I don't have a question that naturally leads on from there, but I've got a list of questions that I've pre-written down and one is on your project Coastlines and just wanted to learn a bit more about this project too and how and when did it start? Well, Industrial Scars was so successful that, and it's a project with, you know, it's, it's an emotional project. So it's not something one starts and stops. But at the same time, as an artist, you always have to be doing something new. Um, so I thought, well, what could I do? What's the next project for me? And we as societies are not prepared for 
ocean, you, you know, for the effects of the climate crisis. And, you know, we are going to have to make hard decisions about our coastal cities. For instance, back to, again, I try to make the stories local, back to London. You built the Thames Barrier, which protects London. It's actually a pretty cool thing. You know, the, the Thames has a history of flooding and uh, with North Sea storm surges. And I don't know if you know the mechanism, but basically storms barrel down the North Sea and the winds from storms push storm surges in front of them. And that those storm surges uh, surge up the Thames estuary. And, um, you know, it's been an historic problem for the city of London. So you built this barrier, the Thames barrier, and the damn thing works. Uh, but, you know, oops, guess what? Ocean rise is basically going to make it obsolete in the next few years. So you're, you're planning another one. Anyway, I this question of what are we as a society going to do about our coastal dwellings and infrastructure, it's a big question. So as I was thinking about what's going to be the next project and being from another coastal city, Charleston, which is, you know, going to be one of the first cities lost in America because Charleston is coastal, it's sinking, um, and the ocean is rising, and that's not a, a good combination. And, you know, they're right now discussing, okay, do we build a seawall around Charleston? Well, then suddenly all the things that make Charleston precious are gone because Charleston is precious because of its waterfront. So that's the thinking that led me to start photographing coastlines. My plan is to do all of the coastlines. Well, it, it, it's a little bit haphazard depending on where I am and where I have a pilot and what my budget is. I want to do all the USA coastlines and all the UK coastlines and all the European coastlines. That's ambitious. And, and I will certainly do it, again, a little bit haphazardly, depending on the factors I just listed. But yeah, it's, it's a fascinating thing. I just went and photographed the barrier. So you built the Thames barrier and it works. They just built um, a barrier to try to protect Venice and er, it doesn't work quite as well as the Thames barrier. Um, yeah, it's fascinating stuff. And for, for some general advice for creative practitioners that are looking to use their skill sets for environmental work, have there been any great books about the environment that have particularly helped you? Yeah, I can't think of um, the well, in fact, James Hansen, who is you know, probably the world's greatest climate scientist, wrote a book called uh, The Storms of My Grandchildren. He was basically the head of, um, of NASA's climate division. And he's the guy that stood up in front of Congress in 1988, I think, and said, uh, NASA is 99% certain that the burning of hydrocarbons is going to lead to disaster. And for a scientist to say 99% certain, that means that she's certain, right? But a scientist will never say, I'm 100% certain, because science is not like that. Science 
there will always be factors that science, that we don't understand. Einstein said, I can't believe that God throws dice. Yeah. And the great British scientist Stephen Hawking said, huh, not only does God throw dice, he throws them where we can't see them. The point being, there will always be things that we don't understand about the complex natural world. But we are certain about that, that, that our burning of fossil fuels is leading us towards disaster. So his book is amazing. There have been, um, you know, too many to name. Uh, I mean, a, a journalist that I work with, he retired from the New York Times, Ian Urbina, just wrote a book about the overfishing and the crisis of the oceans. Uh, another friend of mine, these are all people that I've worked with over the years. Uh, David Biello, who now, um, he used to be at Scientific American, now he's at uh, TED Talks. Um, he just wrote a book about the climate crisis. Yeah, there are too many to name. But there's an, you, you touched on an interesting question which is that, okay, young artist wants to do something, what can they do? And my answer is start locally. Um, I mean, if you're a young photographer and you want to make a difference in the environment, find a local environmental group. You know, we all want to do the big stroke and save the world and then go home and, you know, have a drink. It doesn't work that way. It's all about grueling, endless, small tasks, yeah? And if you want to change the world, find a, a small UK. I mean, if you're in the UK and you want to, you're an environmental photographer and you want to make a difference, find a small environmental group that's local and help them with their imagery and their social media. And, you know, that, that's major. It makes a big difference. And are there, have there been any environmental art movements or works or artists that have been particularly significant to you or influential in the way that you've carried out your work? There was a Russian photographer who died because of radiation poisoning shooting Chernobyl. And this is, that's, that's very touching. Here was, a, here was somebody who realized that they, were die, that they were being killed because they felt like they had to get the story out there. And that's, that, that's impressive to me. That is that is really touching. I didn't know anything about that at all. Um, and are there any artistic projects or environmental topics that you'd love to explore in the future and or future projects in the pipeline that we haven't spoken about that you're keen to do? The oceans are a big presence in my thinking. And certainly the coastal project is relates to that. But of course, much... You know, how do we tell these stories? How do you tell a story of something you can't see, like climate change, the climate crisis? How do you, how do you tell that story? So how do I make some, a lot of it, it requires a lot of thinking. And of course, okay, the typical climate change story is the, the starving polar bear on a floating piece of ice. But I, you know, taking, taking pictures of pretty animals, I don't think... Um, I don't like nature programs. You know, we all love to look at cute little wild animal babies. You know, I hate that because, in fact, it's reassuring. 
You know, when we see the pretty, the pretty nature, I'm sorry, we all love David Attenborough, <laughs> I know, but he started doing those shows, what, 20, 30 years ago? Have they made a difference? My opinion is when Average Jane sees a television program of a pretty little, you know, bear cub or wolf cub, does it make her uh, stop eating hamburgers? No. And even if at the end of the program, David Attenborough says, we have a problem, we need to all be more conscious. No, I'm sorry. We need bad news. And I know none of us like bad news, but there ain't no good news on the environmental front. And everybody says, oh, well, but hasn't COVID given us, given us a carbon breather? Yeah, a small one. It has slowed down our carbon emissions a little bit. But at the same time, we're all ordering takeout and throwing away a lot more plastic right? I mean... Yeah, you only need to see the bins when you walk out onto the streets of London just to see them filled up with single-use coffee cups everywhere. I mean, I thank you for bringing that one up. I mean, I I cannot bear to go into a coffee shop and take, uh, take a throwaway cup. I just won't. I won't do it. I would... I love coffee. I would rather not drink it. I carry my coffee cup into the coffee shop and you know i have a co- i have multiple ones and i carry them steel by the way you should never and you know some environmental advice don't drink out of plastic period end of story plastic is toxic don't drink water and certainly don't drink hot liquids out of plastic you know non-stick pans that's the cra- that's throw them away you know they're an environmental disaster they're a health disaster. People, if I go into the house of a friend and they have children, I will literally take their nonstick pans out of the house and throw them away. Sometimes I will even buy them a new frying pan. Yeah, because you're cooking for your children on toxic waste. I mean, give me a break. Mm. On top of that, I don't have any more questions off the top of my head or There's a few that I've written down, but I think we've covered so much in this discussion. I wanted to ask if there was anything that you feel I've missed or if there were any last words to the people listening that you might want to add in any way. Uh, Yes. And that is this. The, the, The closing is the news is all bad about the environment. And we are rushing towards disaster. But in fact, I believe... One thing that COVID has shown us, and one thing that we see again and again, is the ability of this amazing system, the the rock that we live on, the earth, nature. Nature gives us everything that we need, fresh air, fresh water, fish in the oceans, and this very dynamic, complex system, which we can only understand a bit, has an amazing ability to fix itself. So if we would change how we do things, we can avert disaster. We will lose much. We've, we've pushed the system to the breaking point and we'll lose a lot. 
Yeah, there, we'll lose the polar bears. There won't be any more polar bears in the wild. That's, that's done. There won't be any more tigers in the wild. That's finished, yeah? But we can save a lot. We can save the wolves. We can save the bears. And, you know, why do we care about saving the wolves and the bears other than the fact that they're cute? The answer is this. We need to save nature because saving nature means saving ourselves. We are not separate from nature. We are a part of nature. And the only way to save our world, to keep our world for our children, is to save nature. And that means saving the big wild spaces, which means we've got to stop going to Alaska to extract oil. We've got to stop. I mean, the North Sea oil is almost over. You know, going into the Arctic to get oil and gas is the stupidest thing that we've ever done. But if we would change our ways, then we have a chance to avert the disaster. If we don't change our ways, disaster's coming, and I believe it's coming soon. So that's it. Yeah, we need to all wake up and do the right thing. Hmm. Yeah. And on, on that note, I just want to say thanks for this podcast episode. It's been a pleasure to hear you talk and listen to a lot of your wise words. And it was really good for me personally, and I'm sure for people listening to hear about what you've had to say. Well, Toby, thank you very much. Have a great day. <laughs> Cheers. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Green Canvas. In two weeks, we'll be back for the next episode, where we'll be talking to the documentary photographer, Valerie Leonard, whose projects often showcase the tragic impact of environmental issues on human communities across the world. In the meantime, if you think this is a podcast a friend of yours will enjoy, we would love for you to share it with them or leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us know what you think and others to find the show. And feel free to get in touch with us anytime at hello at greencanvaspodcast.com. We would love to hear your thoughts on the episode or any recommendations and questions you may have for future guests. Thank you again, and I hope you have a great day.